everyone and welcome to Rad Chat, the multi-award winning first therapeutic radiographer-led oncology podcast. Welcome to podcast number 121. My name is Jane McNamara and I'm joined by fellow host, Norman Joel Anderson. Hi everyone. So a big thank you to our last guest, Charlotte Buttes, who discussed medical support and clinical immunology. If you haven't had a chance yet, please do go and take a listen. So I'm really pleased to introduce our guest this evening, Nicola Nuttall, who will be discussing the Be More Laura Foundation she set up in memory of her daughter, Laura. So welcome, Nicola. Thank you so much for joining us this evening. Thank you for asking me. Nicola, anyone who doesn't know you, would you be happy just to introduce yourself? Uh, yes, my name is Nicola Nuttall and I, um, how can I put it? So I had two daughters and my eldest daughter was diagnosed with glioblastoma in October of 2018 when she was 18 and in her first term at university. She was given a prognosis of uh, 12 months roughly and to be honest that was a massive shock to us because everything that we read and everything that we knew and everything we were aware of suggested that we were making huge leaps forward in terms of cancer treatment so I had that amazing confidence that there would be useful treatments and people didn't really die of cancer within 12 months anymore because things were different and we were making huge leaps forward um, so I have learned an awful lot in a very short period of time and, and the biggest shock that I found out was that uh, brain cancers and brain tumours are the biggest killer of children and adults under 40. And nothing has changed in decades. So we fought very hard to give Laura the best possible chance that we could. So she went through all the, the standard treatments. She went through uh, 30 fractions of radiotherapy there with uh, adjuvant chemotherapy and then further chemotherapy after that she had brain surgery she in fact ended up having four brain surgeries and then we identified uh, supplementary and alternative treatments to go alongside that we raised funds we traveled to Germany and Laura went back to university we carried out uh, a quite an extraordinary bucket list of adventures uh, Laura graduated in 2021 and unfortunately we lost her last year in May but she had four and a half years where she was only really thought to be likely to reach 12 months so it's been a it's been a bit of a wild ride and we've we've learned a lot not all of it good and in Laura's memory we've set up a foundation to help fund research into glioblastoma so yeah in a nutshell <laughs> that's hell of it oh thank you so much for um talking to us about Laura um how did it feel being a mum and having a daughter that was diagnosed with cancer because it's it's not anything you ever anticipate is going to happen is it no absolutely not and it was the last thing we'd expected Laura had run her first marathon in the May of that year she'd she'd got fantastic grades in her A-levels and she'd just spent the summer working out in Chicago for the for the governor on the gubernatorial elections um, where she'd been out there for eight weeks, something like that, before she started down at King's. So she was kind of at peak of life, really. She was doing everything. She just passed her advanced driving test and was very ambitious and had lots of big plans for when she was in London. And um, she, she'd mentioned that she was having a few headaches, but because I had migraines, I kind of thought, oh, you're inheriting that, you know, that's nothing nothing extraordinary and then she said this really strange thing happened and I was 
reading a, a textbook on my bed about eight o'clock at night and then I woke up and I was on the floor and I'd bruised my face and my face was wet. So what I know now obviously was that was a, that was her first seizure but at the time she didn't really register it and we didn't really register it. She fell asleep in a lecture and that was something she never did. She only ever slept in bed unlike me who falls asleep in cinemas and wherever. She she never did that. Um, and she went to join St John's Ambulance when she was at uni and got a little bit disconcerted with the road signs and forgot that she had Google Maps on her phone. So just little tiny things which in isolation don't really add up to an awful lot. Um, and she joined the Royal Navy University Corps and it was the medical that she had as part of that that involved an eye test that, that basically um, gave us the information that we needed to be able to get a CT scan that night when we took her to hospital. So things happened very quickly for us. And, and in a way, I think we were lucky in that Laura wasn't going back and forth to a GP or to A&E to try and get a diagnosis. And my contact with other people in the brain tumor community made me believe that we were very lucky because a lot of people spend a lot of time trying to get information and trying to be taken seriously by certainly by GPs and particularly young women who seem to be told that it's stress or it's hormonal or they seem to have a lot of reasons why somebody would have headaches and sickness and CT scans and MRI scans seem to be quite hard to get. Do you think Laura's age had a factor as well? So we've we've engaged with quite a few young people through the podcast and they often say they've had to fight to say it's not just because of I'm, I'm young or I'm growing or something like that. Yeah, definitely. And in Laura's case, it was kind of the classic freshest flu. People in the first term at university tend to pick up a lot of bugs because obviously they're meeting people from all kinds of diverse backgrounds and, and often all kinds of countries and bugs are picked up regularly. And the day after Laura had her eye test, I tried to get in touch with her and she was she could she didn't answer her phone because she had a really bad headache and was really sick. So Gracie and I got the train down late that night from um, from Lancashire and took her to A and E that night. And because I was able to say the optician has flagged something up, pressure behind the eyes, we were taken a lot more seriously than I think we would have been done otherwise. I think she would probably have been sent away had we not got that additional information. So I'm very conscious of that and I'm very conscious of, of how difficult it is when you come up against people who know a lot more than you, but you know the person that you're taking to hospital probably better. So, I mean, as part of the, the Be More Laura Foundation, we sold um, thousands of t-shirts and in every package I send out, I send out one of the Brain Tumor Charities Head Smart cards, which details the symptoms and what things to look for at different ages, because I think uh, parents find it very difficult to be taken seriously and, and they're often seen as slightly neurotic. And if you're making repeated visits back to the GP, you can quite quickly end up with a reputation for being difficult or awkward or just overly persistent. And and I think having that piece of paper to go in with and say, look, my child has three of those symptoms. I think it's it's really important that you feel confident that you know quite often what you can just sense being something wrong with that with that person. You know them better than anyone probably been through this with healthcare professionals in the past but I'm just wondering if your family had any history of such things or any cancer in the family no so we'd all been relatively healthy so yeah and I think I think that makes you even less prepared than you might be if you had kind of 
had anything that flagged up various issues going through. But no, the girls have both been really healthy. No one in the family. Uh, my mum has since been diagnosed with kidney cancer, but that seems to be, of all the cancers to get, that seems to be quite a good one because she's had an operation and has made a full recovery and it's not expected to impact on her life generally. But obviously when cancer's in the brain, it's a completely different matter from any other cancer. And because it's hard, uh, I feel that it's under-resourced. And you know, when you when you look at something like DIPG, which is the the specific form of cancer that Neil Armstrong's daughter had, the treatment that she had in in the nineteen sixties isn't really all that different from the treatment that's available now. And that's really sobering when you look at the huge leaps forward that we've made in things like leukemia and breast cancer and prostate cancer. This this has just basically stayed exactly as it was, with the best one in the world. And I think that the only way that's going to move forward is personalised medicine and whole genome sequencing and uh, the freezing of tumour tissue removed during surgery. Nicola, how did you cope kind of hearing the diagnosis and then obviously having to support Laura with all her treatment? Um, well, I mean, how does anyone cope? You don't really have an awful lot of choice. You just have to get on with it. And I think for us, well, certainly for me, I ploughed my uh, energies and resources when I wasn't looking after Laura into research and trying to identify other options. So we'd take care of her all day and try and keep her as happy and comfortable as possible. And then at night, I'd be on the laptop trying to work out what else was being done in different countries or other things that we could do that that might give her a fighting chance because I would print things off and take them to the oncologist and I'd say look this is I mean it may not be a huge study it may not be um there may not be a 10-year peer review but when you're told your child's got 12 months your attitude towards risk is very very different and you're prepared to take whatever risk you have to if there's a chance it's going to work because if you do nothing you're going to get 12 months so that's difficult in that kind of environment where you're sat with an oncologist and you've said look I've, I've read this I've printed them out for you and they leave them on the side of the desk because I have absolutely no interest in what you've read on the internet and and it is frustrating and I think I mean I did ask the question what would you do if it was your child and that, that question didn't seem to go down very well but I think it is the essence of the question is is you feel like sometimes you feel like it's hard to say but you you get you sort of feel like you're uh, ridiculous or um, overly optimistic or unrealistic and you are all those things because you're doing everything that you can to give someone the best chance of life and and that that can be a difficult relationship then with your oncologist because obviously they really just want you to stick to what you've been told you should do but then you're only going to get 12 months so you know that and then things like cannabis oil come into the equation and different supplements and uh, repurposed drug therapies and and we did all those things and I and even things like the ketogenic diet and and I know that's kind of a one of those issues that people have quite strong views on um, but I know that there's research more recently being carried out, I think it's at the ICR actually, that's showing that that may actually improve outcomes. But we did in, we, we got into kind of, not arguments, but certainly heated debates about whether Laura should be eating cake or not. <laughs> you know, it's a, difficult, it's a difficult time and you're balancing quality of life with trying to get the best results 
from all the treatments that you are you're employing really and it's that cocktail approach I think but yeah keeping busy and trying to find other things that we could add in and and just keeping that hope alive was really important to us and not thinking well this is what we've been told we've got 12 months just do what you can with those 12 months that was that never it was never going to be good enough really Nicola Lawn was an absolutely amazing person, wasn't she? Because she developed her bucket list and it kind of went viral, didn't it, in terms of the amazing things that she was doing, but really living her life to the best that she possibly could do. Yeah, well, because she wasn't, she was told she wouldn't be going back to university, we thought, well, what's the best way of of getting the most out of your time and we said right well we're not going to just sit here and wait for the 12 months to to tick down we're going to fill them with as many things as we possibly can and she started off with a bucket list of 10 things some of which were really simple and really easy um, and that then developed because when you've done when you're halfway through the list you think well, what else do you want to do and people also approached us and said um, I can't help you with that, but how do you want to do this? You know, would you like to try this? And so she never said no to anything, and and that was her approach. She just as long as she was well enough, she would she would go and do it. And sometimes, even when she wasn't well enough, she spent a day with Greater Manchester Police, and they had a really fabulous day of of doing all kinds of things with them planned. And in the morning, we took her, and I took her to the bathroom, and she threw up, and she was horribly sick. And she said, "Don't tell anyone I've been sick because they won't let me do things." And within half an hour, she was. Fine firing live ammunition <laughs> in the firing range I think and that's Laura with the Glock Laura that was just throwing up five minutes ago so you know she she made she made sure that she got the most out of everything that she could and then she wanted to go back to university as well so she was balancing the two to the, to the bucket list and we were doing incredible things we got a phone call from um Captain Dave at British Airways because Laura had put cross the equator on the on the bucket list and he phoned up because it was British Airways uh, 100 year anniversary and they were doing 100 random acts of kindness and they said do you want to fly business class to South Africa and go on safari so I was like yes I think we do so uh, we went off and did that which she absolutely loved I mean she was still she was on chemo at the time she was really poorly um, and she was living off four to sips because she couldn't really hold anything else down, but she was still out for a five o'clock um, game drive in the morning and then again in the evening and got the most out of everything that she could. She just said, I'll just deal with that when I have to, but I'm just going to... She used to say, I'll sleep when I'm dead. And I think she was also thinking, I'll eat when I'm dead because sometimes that was a bit tricky. Uh, we went over to New York and she watched Saturday Night Live being filmed because she absolutely loved that. And she was driving every vehicle that she could because obviously she lost her driving licence fairly early on. So she she made a point of trying to drive every vehicle that she could, and that included a tube train and a tractor. And I, she, uh, yeah, what else did she drive? She rode a motorbike round Donington, um, you name it. And and she was at the wheel. So yeah, she squeezed a lot into a relatively short time, and she didn't waste any time. Sounds amazing. It's a very nice little bit of legacy, I suppose. And is that where the name comes from from the foundation? Yeah, well, Laura was asked to write a letter to the primary school leavers in Barrowford School, which is just down the road from us. And every year they ask somebody to write a letter and it's been uh, various people with connections to the area. So Alistair Campbell one year, Sean Dyche another year. And they asked Laura and she basically gave advice and it's kind of a, a long letter about what she learned about being resilient and what she learned about trying to turn negatives into positives. And, and even when life doesn't go to plan, you never know what might be around the corner. And and it finished with, I can show you on my mug, 
this was the end of the, um, that was the end of her speech. So Be More Laura kind of got tagged on to the end of that. And that's on the t-shirts that we sell and the tote bags and the mugs, as you've just seen. But her attitude was, was one of bravery and courage and kindness as well. She was a very kind person and through her diagnosis, she went, She never felt sorry for herself or asked why it was her. She just, the only time she got upset was when one of her friends took a turn for the worst or where she heard of somebody else being diagnosed. That would upset her, but she just got on with it when it was herself. Um, and she organised, she used to help out with a food bank um, right through COVID. We'd go out and stand outside and, and serve curry and put together food parcels. And on Boxing Day, she came up with the idea of hosting a big party at the Children's Play Centre that we own for um, just vulnerable families, refugee families, young carers and things. And um, and this, she said she wanted to do that rather than have any presents. So we've just we just done the third one and we cook Christmas dinner for 200 people and everybody goes home with a brilliant present. And that's part of her legacy because, you know, she was very kind. And so we have to carry on that work in her name, really really inspirational person um and absolutely being more Laura I think is is definitely a phrase everyone should adopt shouldn't they Nicola from your perspective um did you feel that the support was there from healthcare professionals for a young person going through such a serious diagnosis? Um, because obviously when we think of cancer patients, we think of older people, you know, lots of the services are geared towards di different demographics of patients. You know, how was it from a healthcare professional perspective in terms of, you know, how you were supported? Well, we, we we had a bit of a false start, to be honest, because uh, we we had private healthcare through uh, our small business, and so the whole family were on it. And Laura was treated in the the private part of the hospital, which really wasn't set up for young people at all, and we didn't see any young people up there. We had a, a clinical nurse specialist assigned to us, but she didn't live anywhere near the hospital where Laura was treated. Um, and she was in sort of semi-retirement and then subsequently did retire. So we didn't really have any support, to be perfectly honest. But in the kind of final, maybe the final two years of a diagnosis, we did have an excellent uh, clinical nurse specialist at a, a, a TYA unit, a specific TYA unit. And that made a big difference. But it, it's a shame, really, because we kind of had two and a half years where we'd just been sort of floundering around um, on our own um, which was a bit of a shame really because she didn't really mix with anybody else we we kind of created our own network really and Laura became a young ambassador for the brain tumor charity and that was a really good thing that that we suggested that she did and she wasn't massively keen at the start because she was at a low ebb she had no hair she was red raw from the radiotherapy it was just a really tough time but they have residentials so I think they had tw 22 young ambassadors they all went off and did various outward bound things and just got to know each other and there was no judgment about the fact that you're taking 30 tablets and why do you need all those tablets and why have you got no hair and you know all those things to actually find a support group of people who knew exactly what you were going through that made a massive difference to her and when she found those people that gave her a real lift to know that she wasn't on her own because with quite unusual cancers particularly in someone that young it's very hard to find someone who's going through something similar at a similar age there aren't that many of them thank goodness although the number does seem to be growing 
and and it's a, a tricky one you can't really kind of look to find people that are in that same position um for me as a parent i i turned to twitter which is not something i'd particularly used up until then and found it easier to say the things i was thinking into an abyss of people that didn't know me than to say those things to people that did know me and and initially that was it was anonymous for a reason because you know, nobody wanted to really hear what I was going to say. <laughs> Certainly not the people who who knew and loved us. Um, it didn't didn't really work out like that because quite quickly everybody knew it was me. And Gracie was saying, "Oh, all my friends are following you." And and then don't say that one because you know everyone knows it's you now. So it became a bit of a <laughs> victim of its own success of of a kind. But it is difficult to find other people that know kind of quite how bleak things are. And I think our natural tendency is to try and say positive things and go, yeah, it might not be that bad. It might not. It might not. They might find a cure in the next two years. And yeah, so it, it is difficult. And sometimes you just, you know, that bleakness is exactly how you're feeling. And you just find you want to have some sort of space to say those things out loud, really. I've got a difficult question to ask and I understand if you don't want to go into, into too much detail but can I just take you back into how you've coped with the grief of losing Laura? I'm not sure that I have really I'm not I think I'm just keeping ridiculously busy at the moment and I'm being as functional as possible and um, I've actually I've written a book um, that's coming out in May and I think I've poured a lot into that really and then shut it and kind of gone I can't really I can't really look at that anymore so um I think we're all supporting each other and honestly I'm trying not to think about it which does not sound very realistic but it's there and I know it jumps out from behind cupboards and things but I think it's just trying to stay as functional as possible keeping busy it's I think it's what Michael Rosen calls the, the doing cure and I think there's a lot to be said for that. Gracie and I are walking up Pendle Hill. Well, in theory, we started off deciding we were going to do it 25 times before Laura turns 25 in December, but we've already done five in January. So I think it's going to be more like 50 times. But being outside and walking and talking as we walk, that's actually been quite therapeutic, probably more so than actually sitting down and talking with somebody who didn't know Laura, really. So, well, I guess we're finding our own way through and everyone's different, aren't they? And it's... um. It's tough and I know that it's not a linear process and keeping busy is probably going to see me so far and then I'm probably going to end up crumbled on the floor. But for as long as I can keep functional and not thinking too hard about about the the enormity of it, that's what I'm going to be doing. Nicola, did you ever get offered any support to kind of deal with grief? Because I know we've had um, Steve Bland on the podcast before and he was talking about kind of, you know, it hits you out of nowhere and, you know, you're not necessarily given that support unless you see it. When actually when you're going through grief, you, that's not the thing that you're thinking, oh, I need to seek help at this point or get support. Um, did anyone ever kind of come to you with advice or support? Um or even to offer kind of counselling after Laura died. I'm trying to think, and I don't, I don't think anyone has. Um, I know that um, we had a, we had some help from hospice at home at the end, and um, I know that they do offer counselling services. No one's kind of expressly suggested it or offered it, um, 
but I guess maybe at some point. But the thing is, I think you build a wall and you keep that wall as strong as you can. And the very nature of counselling is that people poke away at the bricks, which can bring the whole thing down. So at the moment, I feel like I need to keep that wall as strong as I can, not just for me, but for Gracie and for Mark as well. And we all have to. We're all trying to be as strong as we can for each other. And maybe at some point I feel the need to to talk to somebody externally, but I think it's a lot easier with people who knew her than than to go and speak to strangers, really. So it's not something I've sought out. So I can't really, I can't really blame anybody else for that because I think I think it's a tricky situation and it's difficult to relive the whole experience and I've kind of done that by writing it because I journaled all the way through well I just I write every every night and have done for probably about six years but it's been quite helpful through this whole process and there's no way I could have written what I've written if I was writing it retrospectively but actually recording how you feel and what happened at the end of the day is almost a, a form of therapy in itself because you kind of put it on the page and then you shut the book and try to leave it there rather than spend all night thinking about it. That's not to say that I don't spend all night thinking about it, but yeah, I think writing is there. Writing and walking, maybe, <laughs> that's, my, that's been my strategy so far and staying stupidly busy. Nicola, I think Joe and I, along with everyone else listening, we are very touched by the story of Laura and how you've been navigating the sort of the journey afterwards um how can we get behind like the be more laura foundation what can we do to support you that's really kind well we have set up the be more laura foundation specifically to help fund research into glioblastoma we're working alongside the the other charities so working alongside brain tumor research and the brain tumor charity and we have really good relations with with both of those because we want to help them to fund the projects that are specific to this this horrible cancer um, i'm also a trustee of a, of a really small charity called our brain bank and they are campaigning specifically for um, tumour tissue to be frozen at the point of removal during surgery and used for whole genome sequencing or potentially for novel therapies like um, dendritic cell vaccinations. It's one of those things that you only find out you need it after you haven't asked for it. And unfortunately with glioblastoma, you don't know necessarily what the cancer is until you do get the results from uh, pathology. And, And with Laura, it was quite a while Uh, until we knew what her diagnosis was and there was very much a feeling that it was probably a secondary brain cancer rather than a primary because of the way it just um, it just showed itself so you don't know that you need that tumor tissue until two weeks after the surgery so that's something that our brain bank are really really keen to push forward Um, and for us it's it's twofold really it's funding the research and it's also keeping Laura's memory alive I guess for us and and that's what that's what uh, she would want us to do she doesn't want anybody else to get diagnosed with this horrible disease so as i say we we are raising funds we've sold um t-shirts and mugs and we have a website which is called be more laura rather uh, ingeniously and and going forward we've got lots of things planned we're going to do the three peaks we're probably going to do another ball and we're also uh, campaigning and going down to the um APPG meetings in Parliament to try and get the point across and I have been asked to speak at the Greater Manchester Cancer Alliance Conference in May 
Um, which is it's something that I never, ever imagined I would be doing, standing in front of people and telling them about glioblastoma and talking about Laura. It's quite surreal. And, and I did that recently at the Brain Tumor Research Researchers Conference, which was down in Milton Keynes. So I think it's just being noisy um, and trying to get other people to be noisy too. And, and we're really interested to hear about projects that we can help to fund that will just move us steps forward and then there are exciting things on the horizon and you can read about all these amazing things that but it's just that length of time that it takes from from bench to treatment is just it's just so frustrating and and when you're in this environment people are always sending me links look at this great news and you're like, yes but it's going to take so long for it to to happen and, and there are interesting things like uh, Petra Hammerlink in Manchester is looking at um, using tears as a diagnostic rather than biopsies and the idea that you could diagnose um, a brain tumour or certainly flag up the, the, the signs of a brain tumour using tears rather than invasive surgery that would be phenomenal if we could if we could make that step forward so there are exciting things they just need to be funded and brain tumour research gets two percent of the uh, cancer spend which just seems disproportionate to the how many people die from it and how pervasive it is in young people and we've, we've made huge leaps forward as I say in leukemia and we just need that same effort and that same will applied to the brain cancers and that's my job. <laughs> oh, well Nicola obviously I didn't know Laura but hearing about how inspirational she was I absolutely think she would be so proud of all the amazing work that you're doing because you're following on her legacy and doing all these amazing things that maybe does push you outside of your oh. own comfort. <laughs> <laughs> but you're doing it in memory of Laura, which I think, you know, she must she must just have been the most incredible person to have a mum like you that's also then going to carry on that. So absolutely, I think what you're doing is incredible. And we're so lucky to have you on the podcast and be able to share all the amazing work you're doing. <laughs> that's really kind of you to say. Thank you. <laughs> Nicola, we always ask at the end of Rad Chat um, for any top tips, and you've given loads already as you've kind of gone through, but for anyone, and I'm thinking specifically a parent out there who has a child going through a cancer diagnosis, what advice would you give them? Um, I would say find find your tribe, find the people that are further down the line than you, um, and and find the story, the, find the stories of hope, and cling onto them with both hands because there are always people at the end of the bell curve who are doing well, and it's really important to find out who they are and what they're doing, and to try and share that with the people that come behind you as well, and, and to just to share that knowledge and support each other. And there are resources out there, um, and it's important that you feel confident that you know what else is happening in the world as well and sometimes you know, there have been times when I've personally <laughs> said to our oncologist do you think we could change this drug to that drug that does the same thing because I've read that there's a secondary benefit when it comes to uh, brain cancer and they've said I've never heard of that drug but I'll do the research and I'll come back to you and let you know and you have to be your own specialist to a degree because the the oncologist you're dealing with might be dealing with 
30 patients that day and they, they will not know your person as well as you do. And nobody has more skin in the game than a parent. So it is worth it is worth reaching out and trying to find the people. And there are people there that, who, who are keen to help. There are also a lot of snake oil salesmen and sometimes you have to kind of find a little bit of help to work out one from the other. Um, but yeah, definitely know your own child and and if you feel like you're not getting anywhere, just keep banging the drum and maybe find another way round if you if you hit a brick wall. Oh, thank you so much. Some great advice. And I'm sure anyone listening um, will be keen to take on board what you've said. So thank you for listening to Rad Chat. Your hosts today have been myself, Jay McNamara and Namanjelka Anderson. If you're utilising this podcast for CPD purposes, consider the reflective questions posted along with links and resources and literature that we've discussed. To receive your accredited CPD certificate, please complete the Google form linked with the podcast. Our next guest to feature will be Kat Tunnicliffe, who will be discussing Percy Health and Exercise Oncology Physiotherapy. So thank you all and good night. <laughs>